0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live.
1: A very good morning to you today on The Breakfast Show for this Saturday. We are exploring identity and we are looking at what it means to construct our identities as teachers. Well, good morning, if you are listening to me live, good morning or good afternoon or good evening, if you are listening to me on catch up. This is Saturday morning breakfast. It is nine o'clock on this Saturday, the 27th of August. Quite how we are at the 27th of August already, I do not know. Um, I can't believe how quickly this summer has gone. When I come to you next week, I will have already done my two days of inset, um, rounding off the summer holiday and I'll be ready for our kids to come back in on the Monday morning. And I just I just cannot believe that these past seven weeks have flown by as quickly as they have. Um, you know, teachers say this, we say this all the time. I mean, the very first things we do when we go back to school is we have that conversation, how are you? How was your summer? Did you do anything good? And everybody always says, oh, I can't believe how quickly it went. Um, but this summer in particular has just seemed to flow by um, flow by, to fly by, <laughs> although it has, you know, there has been a nice flow to it, it has been quite chill. Um, I don't know whether it's maybe because I have been doing the show, I can't believe I've been doing the show for the whole summer now, um, that's that's insane to me, but maybe it is, and so I've had these Saturday mornings every single week as kind of like a benchmark of, of how the weeks are progressing, so I'm just a bit more aware of, of how the time is going, Or maybe it's just been a particularly good summer. I really don't know. But we are already coming to its end. We have had two sets of results days now. We had A-Level last week. Uh, We had GCSE this week. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. And so that kind of rounds off, as far as I'm concerned, that rounds off the academic year. That is kind of last year, 2021, 2022 is done and we are now ready. We are now looking forward to 2022 and 2023. Um, And that's one of the weirdest things I think about being a teacher, certainly for me, is that we very rarely live in the present. We very rarely live in the moment. We are always having to think about what's coming next. We're always having to plan for what's coming next. Because if I don't know what's coming next in my sequence of lessons, I can't teach it properly because I can't be sure that I've covered all the skills that I need to teach. If I don't know that Year 10 are out on work experience in March, then I'm not going to be able to plan my Year 10 curriculum to make sure that everything I'm doing, um, everything that I need to do, gets covered. And so we're always, always looking for what's coming next. I think particularly as we get ready to head back into school, I think it's important for us to remember to take time to stay present, to stay in, in what's happening now. Um, as we are finishing up our holiday and getting ready to go back, of course, uh, lots of people have gone back already. Um, I know certainly my, my teacher friends in the US, my teacher friends in Scotland um, have been back for a couple of weeks already, and lots of people who teach in Europe are either back already or getting ready to go back um, so I'm aware that actually in, in England we are quite late going back compared to the rest of the world but uh, as we do go back or if you've been back for a couple of weeks and you're still kind of getting into the routine do you make sure that you take some time for yourself um, to ensure that you are starting off the year healthily that you are getting yourself into some good routines Um, so that you don't burn yourself out too soon. Ideally, not at all. (laughs) But if you do, because I think we all experience some kind of professional burnout at some point during the year, whether we want to admit it or not, whether we want to talk about it or not. Um, And so it's a good idea to try and stave that off for as long as possible. So this week has been GCSE Results Week. Um, And I kind of wanted to... Before we get into the, the bones of today's show, I kind of wanted to talk about something that I saw going around on Twitter definitely yesterday, perhaps on Thursday. Um, I stayed off social media on Thursday. I actually make the choice these days to stay off social media on results days um, because it. I realized from my point of view, from what I'm seeing, and maybe that's just kind of the news as I see it, And so if we've got any more positive sources, please do recommend them to me. But as far as I see it, it doesn't actually matter how well our students do. The news will still always be very negative around results day. Um, It will still always pick on the poorer results or what we've done wrong or how we're failing the kids. And it's, it's very rare to see national positive pictures. We can see them locally. You know, my local newspaper is very good at celebrating the the positive results, the good results that our students achieve. But um, I, I feel that it's overwhelmingly a negative, negative picture from the, the general press. So I do try and for my own mental health, for my own well-being, I do try and avoid social media over results days. So I logged into Twitter yesterday. And I saw something going around about um, it it boils down to whether we can take ownership of results. And it's a very, very small thing. And it's very semantic. Um, But, you know, I'm a linguist, so semantics is what I do. Uh, And it's this idea of your results as the teacher. You got good results with your year 11s this year. You got good results with your year 13s. And I I was thinking about this yesterday, sort of reading all of the different replies. And I thought, well, actually, no, I didn't get any results this year because I didn't sit any exams. Um, I will get results next year because this time next year, I will have finished the first half of my my next master's degree. So I will get results this year, but I didn't get any. Uh, Sorry, I will get results next year, but I didn't get any this year. Um, My students did. Uh, the students that I taught did. My eldest nephew did. I'm very, very proud of him. He did very, very well. Um, but I didn't. I actually had no input into the exam process whatsoever. I didn't write an exam. I didn't mark an exam. Um, I'm thinking about about marking. Um, I've been talking to a couple of people I know who do mark exams, and, and I think it would be interesting, but I didn't do that this year. Um, I didn't sit an exam. My contribution to the whole process ended in that very last lesson that I taught before my students went in. And as I've talked about on the show before, I didn't learn the material, I taught it. And so for me, I've, I've realized that saying, Talking about my results as a teacher detracts from what my students have done. It detracts from the work that they put in, in order to get those results. And I'm not saying that I didn't work hard, because I did. I worked very hard to try and make sure that what I was teaching was accessible to all of my students, regardless of attainment or CAT scores or um, specific needs. I worked very hard to provide as many models as possible of essays, of vocabulary. I worked very hard to make sure that if I taught a theme, I provided videos and podcasts and other, um, other media on that theme that my students could go away and listen to. But ultimately, they're the ones who did that. They're the ones who engaged, they're the ones who took the exams. And so from my point of view, they're the ones who deserve the credit. And talking about my results takes that credit away from them. And when I think about my own school days, uh, you know, when I think about my GCSEs, my A levels, going up to school on results day, opening that envelope, taking it out, seeing those letters. I felt as the student that they were my results, because I felt exactly the same then. I felt like I had done the work, I had done the revision, yes my teachers had been brilliant, my teachers had taught me, my teachers had put on the revision sessions that I went to, sometimes willingly, sometimes reluctantly, but uh, that's the nature of children. (laughs) Uh, My teachers were fantastic, but ultimately as the learner I felt that they were my results because I felt exactly as I've just laid out that I had sat the exam. And so I had earned those, those letter grades that I got. And and I want my students, I want the students that I teach to have that exact same feeling, to have that feeling of they had earned what they got. So yeah, that's just my, my two pennies worth on the whole taking ownership over results obviously different teachers will feel differently about it i know that there are lots of teachers who put a lot of stock into the results that their classes get and who feel that they put as much work in if not more towards getting those results and so that kind of that semantic ownership over my results is is absolutely fine and and that's great if that works for you then fantastic because as i will explore the show today we all construct our teacher identities a bit differently and if if your teacher identity is one of i have as much right to these results as my students do brilliant that's that's your reality that's your truth and i am not going to dispute that at all um it just so happens that that's not my reality that's not my truth and so i would like to congratulate the students that i taught um in all of the subjects that I taught them at all levels. I hope that they are as pleased with their results as I am, because you know I feel like I can be pleased with them. I feel like I can look at them and go, yes, you worked hard, you progressed, you earned that. you know, And I can take pride in that, I feel. Um, but I'm not going to, it's not my truth that they are my results, because ultimately I don't get 30 Chinese A-levels right now. <laughs> You know, my 30 students, the the 30 students that I taught, they each get their A-level. So, yeah, that's where I am with that right now. And I kind of, I, I feel like it's important to have these conversations. And I feel like as somebody who has been very kindly offered this platform um, here on Teachers Talk Radio, it's important for me to discuss these different ideas, these different opinions, because social media has become very important for teachers over the last few years. Um, I think we probably, those of us who use Twitter um, subscribe to lots of teaching accounts. Um, the Those who use Facebook, I know, belong to lots of Facebook groups to do with teaching. Um, I'm sure it's the same on, on other social media. I know that there are lots of teachers in a very strong uh, YouTube teaching community. I know there are lots of teachers on TikTok, which I personally don't understand, um, but I feel that that's because I'm too old for TikTok personally, that's, that's my truth. Um, and so we do, we do create these communities. And within these communities, there are so many different people who come from so many different backgrounds. And the only real thing we have in common is our profession. Kind of en masse and so we see these different opinions going around and occasionally and this is something that i will come back to a bit later when we start to talk about identity properly um occasionally we see people whose opinions mesh with ours and that's great and then occasionally we see a people whose opinions do not mesh with ours and are in fact the polar opposite And it's very easy then to sit and go, oh, okay, maybe my opinion is wrong. Um, Maybe I'm not a, air quotes, proper teacher for thinking this. And so I do think, because there is no real right and wrong to these sorts of questions, I do think it's important to see um, and to hear lots of opinions, lots lots of different ideas surrounding these things so that we can figure out what is right for us. As teachers because again there is no objective right and wrong to this there is no real yes absolutely these are my results or no these are definitely not my results uh, there just is the fact that students get results and the different ways that different teachers react to it And again it's good for us to hear all sorts of opinions on that I'd be interested to know what your opinions are. Um, Results, of course, is not what my show is about today, but if you do have have an opinion that you would like to share, you are free to text in using the Podbean app. You can call in also using the Podbean app if you are live today. I am always willing to take calls and read out texts. Um, If you would like If you would like to text in but do not want me to respond to your text, uh, that's absolutely fine. If you would just like to share your opinion but not necessarily have me read the text out, that's okay. You can just say that to me in your message. I'm more than happy to do that. You can also tweet me. I am at Mr. D. Lester, or one word. Lester is L-E-S-T-E-R. Mr. is the abbreviation M-R. And you can do that at any point during the week. The conversations that we have today that we've started right now on identity, uh, sorry, that we started right now on results that we will be having a bit later on on identity. Those conversations will be carrying on all week and I am interested to hear different points of view because I think, I do think it's important for us as teachers to have ideas and to have our beliefs and to understand that we perform our practice in certain ways, but I also think it's important to challenge those ideas. And I think it's important for all of us to remember, again, particularly those of us who are about to go back to school and go into INSET, it's important to remember that having our ideas challenged does not mean that our ideas are wrong, and it does not mean that our practice is being critiqued. Which is something that I think affects a lot of teachers' self-esteem. Um, if you're interested in teacher self-esteem and you didn't hear my show last week, please do go back into the archives and listen to it. I did a whole hour and a half explaining or exploring um, explaining what self-esteem is and exploring how self-esteem is, is developed and managed within teaching. And quite often our practice is uh, let, uh, is bundled up into our self-esteem and you know, whether or not we are a good teacher is part of how we feel, not just about our job, but about ourselves. And so feeling that our practice is being critiqued, feeling that our practice is being criticized um, can be very uncomfortable. So it's important to remember that if your ideas, if your beliefs are being challenged, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're wrong, particularly in something like teaching, where it's very difficult to get an objective right or wrong in terms of what is good practice, what is best practice. There are just ideas, there are just theories that we need to think about. And remember that listening to other people's opinions, hearing dissenting opinions, gives you the opportunity to either reconsider your opinion and go, oh, okay, actually, yeah, I haven't thought about that before. Maybe I'm not doing it in the way that is best practice. I can change that. Or it can help you to go, oh, actually, no, I'm absolutely right. I do not agree with what this person is telling me at all. I have seen from my own classes over the last two years, 15 years, 40 years, however long you might have been teaching for, that the way that I'm doing it works, and so that's what I'm going to stick to. And And hearing a dissenting opinion can reaffirm, reinforce your own belief. But I do think it's important not to live in an echo chamber, necessarily, and not to be afraid of opinions that, um, that are different from our own, because if we only hear the same opinions that we have, then we are just not growing. We're not allowing ourselves to grow as people. We're not allowing ourselves to grow as teachers. Um, On GCSEs, Kind of the last thing that i want to talk about regarding exams this last time probably that i will talk about exams for about a year um, until the season starts again and i'm sure that will come around all too quickly um was tony blair appearing in the news midweek um it might have even been thursday it might have been on results day and he was talking about how the system needs to be reformed um about how the way the exams currently work in and I actually don't know whether he was talking about the UK as a whole or whether he was just talking about England and Wales, which generally share a system. Um, but he says that it needs to change because the kind of terminus exam-based system doesn't work anymore for the modern world. And, you know, we see that quite a lot. This idea that that the way we assess what our students have learned doesn't actually assess what our students have learned. And, you know, I understand that point. I really do. Because if you think about students in in year 13, so for those of you not uh, not familiar with certainly the English system, year 13 is when our students are um, 17, 18 years old. Um, it used to be called upper sixth, And it's the year before they would traditionally go off to university. So it's when they take their final set of exams for compulsory schooling. And we assess what boils down to 14 years of learning. We assess what boils down to everything that they learned from that first day when they walked into their reception classroom at the age of four, right up until that last day that they walk out of their very final lesson before study leave at the age of 17-18 and we assess all of those 14 years of learning through two or three two-hour exams per subject that they've chosen to study and those exams then are what either allows them or disallows them uh, allows them to or disallows them from getting their university place And that's a lot. That's a lot of pressure for those students. That's a lot for them to deal with. And there is no way that you can fully assess what a student knows in a subject in, let's say, five total hours of exams over that exams period. There just isn't. And you also can't assess everything. So I know, for example, if we take A-level Chinese, which I teach, um, I teach a film and I have to teach everything about that film. There are four different um, criteria that the question about the film could come up um, in. So it could be a question about the characters in the film. It could be a question about the themes of the film. It could be a question about the settings of the film or it could be a question about the technical techniques of filming and my students have to be able to answer those questions in Chinese. So what I need to do when teaching the film, and this is just one unit of the whole A-level, we have to watch the film and that takes a lot of time, I then have to teach them in depth about every character, about every shot, about every piece of music. We have to think about extras. We have to think about background noise. We have to think about the um, social trends in China as the film was set and as the film was being made, because of course that's not always the same thing. We have to think about um, the types of cameras that were used. We have to think about what goes on in the director's life that led up to that filming. And all of that then is assessed by one question that is set in one of those criteria. And let's say it's a character question, it's going to be about one character. Or it might, if I'm lucky, be a compare and contrast question. So that's a lot of teaching that I've done. That's a lot of learning that my students have done that ends up not being assessed. And I think that's a shame, because it does come down to luck of the draw. If my hypothetical student um, Sarah revised the two main characters of my film, but she didn't revise, uh, let's say, one of the protagonists' dad, because she felt he wasn't important, and then the dad is who the question is about, that costs Sarah her marks. And it doesn't matter that she knows all about all of the other characters. The fact that she didn't revise the dad thoroughly is might cost her the grade that she needs. I'm not entirely sure that that's fair. There is an extent to which you can argue, and I completely understand this point of view, that um, by picking and choosing what we assess we ensure that our students know the whole of the syllabus thoroughly and that is absolutely fair but it's also fair if as i did or as i think many of us did when we were looking at um, teacher assessed grades and center assessed grades as a result of the lockdowns if we were to teach individual subsets and then assess those or teach the individual subsets assess them later on to see if that information has been retained but assess all of them then that better gives us the opportunity to see what our students actually know instead of penalizing what they don't know which even in a positive marking system is kind of what happens with terminus end of course exams And I'm I'm not critiquing the the writers of the exams because they know that there is only so much they can ask, so much that they can reasonably expect to ask in a two and a half hour exam. I'm not critiquing the exam boards because they know that there is only so much that can reasonably be assessed in a short exam. And I understand that if we were to move to a coursework-based, a, coursework a portfolio-based system, then we would start inviting all sorts of critiques like we had with teacher-assessed grades, centre-assessed grades, where schools begin to be accused of inflating their grades or manipulating the um, the work that their students are doing in order to look good in the league tables. And of course, whether or not league tables should exist is is a whole separate show. And and so I do understand that there is no right or wrong again to this. There's There's no real answer that is gonna make everybody happy. But I do wonder whether it is time for us to think about the exam system I, I do wonder whether we had a golden opportunity to reflect on this over the lockdowns. And we didn't do that because the, the impetus was on getting back to normal. And I do wonder whether we need to look and see exactly how fair the current system is for all of our students um, and whether or not there is a better way of us to assess what our students have learned that can better and truly reflect not their attainment necessarily not their ability but what they actually did learn what they are actually able to do both inside and out of the classroom
0: this episode of teachers talk radio has been made possible with support from with slack group the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care they're here to support you too through an ever growing offer of free resources including webinars podcasts articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio.
2: Hello, this week I continue with my series on home connection and getting the best performance. The question today is wired or wireless connection. Which is best? In the past, a wired connection was considered the fastest and this would be the end of the episode. However, modern wireless speeds are comparable with a wired connection. So what factors affect performance? The first factor to consider is can you actually connect via a wire? Some devices don't have an ethernet or compatible port to have a wired connection. Being hardwired allows a more stable connection. You're not relying on high frequency waves to transmit. transmit your data, and waves are susceptible to interference in the shape of distance from the transmitter receiver, in human language, your hub. Then there are walls, furniture, other devices, basically anything that gets in the way. So the first tip is, if possible, use a wired connection. At home, though, this is easier said than done. You need to be reasonably close to your home hub, as this is where the ports are, and sometimes that's not a great place to work. If you are after a wired connection, away from your hub, then take a look at using powerline adapters. These are two plugs that use your existing home electric wiring to create a virtual wired connection to anywhere in the building that has a plug socket. They are relatively cheap, and some can also be used as wireless extenders, allowing you to create a better Wi-Fi coverage in dark spots in your home. At around £30-50, pounds it's a relatively cheap and aesthetically pleasing option compared to running cables around your home. Meshing is the next solution to improve coverage. More recently, homes have been adopting the mesh system. Meshing is linking wireless access points together to extend their range. All have the same sign-in, so you can seamlessly move from one to the other with uninterrupted connection. Starting at around 80 pounds, it's a more expensive option, but if you only have devices that use Wi-Fi, this might be the answer for you. With most home networks, after bandwidth availability, interference is your next enemy. Always try to place your home hub in the most central place if the telephone sockets allow. Otherwise, consider power line adapters or meshing. Most modern internet providers give you options to buy these devices from them. This will guarantee it works for your network, but be aware this will come at a higher price tag. If this has given you food for thought, I'd love to hear from you. Why not get in touch at TT Radio 2022? Follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech.
0: Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio.
3: If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future.
0: This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News.
3: This is a Teachers Talk Radio News GCSE special. With many young people celebrating their GCSE results on Thursday the 25th of August, a range of both local and national media outlets have carried stories of success. Schools Week have provided a clear analysis of some of the trends as pupils received grades via examinations for the first time since 2019. The main headline figures have dropped from those achieved in 2021 when pupils' grades were awarded based on teacher assessment, but many were up when compared to 2019 figures. The main headlines for pupils in England include the Grade 5 or above pass rate at 60.3%, which is up from 53.5% in 2019, with Grade 4s improving from 69.9% to 75.3%. The number of pupils achieving top Grade 9s sits at 6.8%, but is much higher than the 4.7% in 2019. In terms of subjects, English has seen a bigger drop in top grades than maths on 2021 levels, although both subjects still outperform 2019 grades. There were also nearly three times more straight nines since the last exams, with 2,193 students achieving all grade nines compared to just 837 in 2019. Over two thirds of these students were girls, sparking some additional reporting on the gender gap in terms of attainment. 13 students in England achieved grade nines in 12 or more GCSEs. One of the biggest stories, however, has been the attainment gap between north and south. In the northeast of England, the proportion of pupils achieving top grades of sevens or above was 22.4% compared to 32.6% in London. Uh Whilst in the West Midlands, a fifth of students achieved top grades compared with one third of London students, according to the website Birmingham World. This data has prompted a number of stories focusing on school funding, and what some view as the disproportionate effects of the pandemic on some areas. The director of Schools North East, Chris Zaraga, called for an urgent recovery plan which recognised the different needs of different areas, whilst also highlighting the work done by the region's students and teachers in what he called unprecedented circumstances. Meanwhile, Ofqual chief Joe Saxton, speaking to the TES magazine, has commented on the attempt to return to normal assessment. In the article, she notes that the advanced information issued by exam boards to help students sitting this summer's exams may not have been helpful in practice. Speaking to school leaders at the Confederation of School Trusts Conference, she stated that it gave pupils just one other thing to think about. Dr. Saxton also explored how she expects aspects such as grading scales to evolve in the future. The core points of the speech, included addressing disadvantage, described as a key part of her job, with examples of maths and MFL questions being accessible to all. She also described the summer 2022 exam grading as one of the most generous in history, as Ofqual did not want to return to 2019 grading levels in one fell swoop. Dr. Saxton acknowledged that exams would be changing over the coming years, highlighting that she believes it is a case of when, not if, we move towards online assessment but added that reform must not throw out babies with bathwater and that handwriting is here to stay. And finally, Exam Board AQA continues to face industrial action from employees who are part of the union unison. The strikes are currently in their fourth period of industrial action as a dispute over pay and threats of fire and rehire continue, according to union representatives. The action coincides with many of those who marked exams for the board this year taking to social media to complain of delayed and missing payments and some claims of pupils not receiving marks at all this has been your teachers talk radio gcse news special with joe fox
1: well lots to unpack from joe's news there today um i'm not going to do that right now because otherwise this will turn into the Saturday Breakfast Show GCSE special, which is not what I've been advertising. Um, But I think it is important just to kind of round everything off because Joe's news um, ties in quite nicely with what I was saying before we went in. It is important for us to look at the critique that we've seen about whether the exams that we have our children sit do in fact prepare them for the real world in inverted commas because of course school is real it's very much real i go there every day i know it's there i know it's real um, particularly with this with this focus on handwriting um, because you know handwriting is important you know it is important that we know how to write but on the day-to-day level I don't know how many people actually do sit and write things that need to be legible to anybody other than themselves and we already have access arrangements for students who have illegible handwriting they're allowed to work process and once again we have this disparity between what we are saying is important handwriting is important so moving to online total online assessment is not going to happen versus we need to make sure that these students who are for whatever reason not able to handwrite can access the exam in the same way. And those kinds of disparities, trying to make this fair for everybody is exactly why I am glad that I personally do not work for Ofqual because again, there is no right answer. There is no answer that's going to to satisfy everybody. But that is not why we are here today. We are here today to talk about identity um this theme was kind of inspired by a conversation i had with somebody after last week's show on self esteem um you know and all the different things all the different factors that build into somebody's self esteem and how if no not if the fact that we allow our self esteem to be impacted by external factors by other people who make comments who critique who judge our teaching and in doing that we allow somebody else's judgments outside of ourselves to impact how we feel about ourselves and that got me thinking about how the identities that we have both as people you know out in the world in our lives and as teachers are constructed they're not really real they're not objective they're entirely subjective i have this conversation every so often with colleagues of mine and we talk about how being a teacher feels like playing a role teaching is a performance art you know Um, i've mentioned before every so often the um the discussion about school dress codes come up and there is that slight disparity between male teachers are expected to do suits and ties full-on business attire whereas female teachers have slightly more flexibility in terms of what they wear Um, and i personally defend my shirt and my tie and my jumper because i feel like it's putting on a costume i put those things on and I'm not Darren anymore. That's the point that I become Mr. Lester, and and they're not the same person. They can't be the same person because that's ridiculous. <laughs> so there is this completely separate identity that that I build, and you know my my dress code is is part of that. And I think we all do that, whether we're aware of it or not. We all create these slightly different we all portray these slightly different aspects of our personality, of our identity, based on where we are and what we are doing. You don't relate to your students in the same way that you do to your friends. That will be a massive safeguarding concern. (laughs) And so automatically, just by being in front of children, you are creating a, a different type of you. It's still you. It's just teacher you instead of um on the football pitch you or in tesco's you or in the library you and i was interested with how we go about constructing these identities you know at what point do we start building our our teacher identity and so i i did what i always do when i have these questions i went to google And I found Helen Waldron's 2016 book, which is quite helpfully entitled, What's Your Teaching Identity? Um, Helen is an EAL teacher. And in the introduction to her book, she says that identity is a very complex issue. Because of course it is. Because I cannot possibly want to do a show about a topic that just has a nice one page Wikipedia stub that I can read in an afternoon and be ready to talk. Of course, I have to pick something that is complex and multifaceted. Um, And so I started to read all the academic articles. I read everything that I can over the past week about teacher identity and, and what it means and where it comes from. And it boils down to as um, Crandall and uh, Christensen said in in their twenty sixteen uh, their twenty sixteen UFA, the development of teacher identity, identifying with in my case language teaching as a prof- as a profession, and over time becoming the type of teacher one desires to be, is central to our practice. And, and I agree with that. I think what they are getting at is that your identity as a teacher changes it evolves based on the uh, subject that you are teaching certainly because different subjects require different skills they require information to be presented in different ways and it's based on who you want to be as a teacher who your teaching role models are Perhaps how you want to be remembered. If you know the the memories of you, the students take away long after school are important to you, then perhaps you will create your identity around what you want them to say about you, what stories you want to be told. For Helen Waldron in her book, teacher identity is broken down into three different components. So there's what sets you apart and makes you recognisable. That is your teacher brand. I suppose in this in this modern modern time of everybody having their own brand of everybody having their own attempt to be unique. Um, that's kind of what we're calling it. So, what is it about your teaching? Not what is about you as a person, but what is about your teaching that sets you apart from the other people in your school? If you're in, you know, a small single form entry primary school where you know you can all fit in the staff room at the same time or perhaps your department if you're in a slightly bigger uh maybe a secondary school let's say that has 100 200 teachers what is it that sets you apart from the others what is it that makes your practice distinctly you what is it that remains unchanged when your circumstances change so helen Waldron calls these your deep-rooted principles and beliefs So what is it that you absolutely believe about teaching that will never change? Now, for me, that belief is that I am actually the least important part of the puzzle. And I've kind of I've wrestled with that idea for a long time um, because I've had conversations with lots of teachers whose um, whose deep rooted belief is that they are a very important part of what goes on in their classroom and i respect that as as their truth but for me i believe that because we have these set curricula that we have to teach we have these specific aims that we need our students to get to and they are all the same regardless of which exam board you teach you know we have these jcq these ofqual guidelines that have to be met and so Anybody in my classroom is going to do that. The outcome is still going to be the same. My students are still going to sit those same exams, whether it's me teaching them or somebody else. The only difference is going to be perhaps how that's taught or what is focused on. And so for me, that is, you know, that's one of my my unchanging beliefs when circumstances change that I am the, the smallest part of the puzzle. And, you know, perhaps that's why, as I talked about at the top of the show, I don't subscribe to the My Results idea. Because for me, it's all about centering the students and centering what they're going to do. And then the third Um, component of teacher identity according to Helen Waldron is the quality or condition of being exactly the same as something else that is exactly the same as what you belong to so here she is acknowledging your I'm going to quote your adherence to a movement belief profession ideal or organization so it's kind of the opposite of your teacher brand. Your teacher brand is what sets you apart and then your being exactly the same as something else is what homogenizes you. And when I was thinking about this I noticed that in Helen's research all of the participants and you know this was a very small scale study that she did but all of her participants Um, aligned their identities within components one and two, so what sets you apart and what remains unchanged, but none of them set their identities by belonging to their school or their union or their department or whatever it might be. And that suggests that as teachers, we don't necessarily look outwards towards our environment uh, in order to construct our teaching identities. Now, at first glance, that seemed counterintuitive to me because we can't be teachers without the subjects that we teach, without the school that we are teaching in, be that an online school or a physical in-person school, um, without the, the, the children themselves whom we are educating. And all of those things acknowledge our adherence to a movement, belief, profession, ideal or organisation. But as teachers, those associations are transient. Our classes change. In primary school, if you're a primary teacher, your class will change every year. If you teach secondary, then you might see a class through two years you know you might take the same class for GCSE you'll take the same class for A level Um, but two years is probably the maximum length of time you will have exactly the same class for. I remember being at uni doing my B.Ed and we were told during a professional studies lecture that it was expected for teachers to move schools every three to five years in order to keep our practice fresh. And moving that frequently though, doesn't give you enough time to really become a part of the fabric of the school. Uh, I got an email last Saturday from my school's um, alumni association telling me that um, I was invited, I am invited to become an honorary alumnus uh, because I've just hit 10 years with my school. And, And even now 10 years in, I still don't feel like I am an ingrained part of the school's um, 140 year history. And so I don't know how I would have felt if I had only been there for three years. You know, I'm only now, after 10, being invited to become part of the Alumni Association. Moving that frequently doesn't necessarily give you enough time to figure out which group of teachers you um, you associate with, that you align with. You know, it doesn't give you enough time to figure out where in the staff room you're going to sit, and it's really hard to be loyal to a movement, belief, profession, ideal, organization when you go in with the expectation of leaving in such a short time and i think that's sometimes about when we move up the uh move up the greasy pole you know when you try and move from classroom teacher into middle management subject leader then into senior management and into headship you know if you follow that progression it's quite easy to take a position at a school believing that you're going to be there short term because it's like the next rung on the ladder, but it's not actually the, the bit that you want to be doing. You're using that as a stepping stone. And so again, you're going into that school, believing that you will move on very quickly. And so you're not going to take that school in. You're not going to internalize that school as part of your teacher identity because you don't plan on being there. Tim has texted in. Thank you, Tim. Tim is a fan of the show, which I appreciate very, very much. I'm always really interested to hear what he has to say. Um, Tim was actually also my very first guest on the show. So if you haven't listened to his thoughts on children's literature, please do go back through the archive and find that show out because it's very, very interesting. Tim says, it's interesting to hear you talk about how wearing certain clothes helps you con- to construct Mr. Lester's identity—that's very similar to theories on performativity and signifiers. It suggests to me that a teacher's identity is transient, or rather, constructed specifically to that role. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think as I've explored this over the last week, that is what has been cemented. It was kind of what it was—the the theory that I was going into this show with was this idea that, in my case, Mr. Lester will change. Um, And he will change depending on who I'm teaching because Mr. Lester in a one-to-one is very different to Mr. Lester who has got 25 kids. Mr. Lester in a one-to-one can focus on output, can focus on input, can focus on teaching, whereas Mr. Lester with 25 kids is probably going to focus on behavior management. Um, And so, you know, even within one day, my identity as a teacher can change and kids who are talking to each other might find that they construct different realities of me based on how they relate to my subject, based on um, how I behaved in class that day, you know, if I hadn't had my coffee and I was in a bad mood then they might construct one version of me compared to a class who would come in after break when I'd had my coffee so I was in a good mood. And it is, it's all very transient and it's all very constructed. It's all very much to do with um, exposure to different circumstances, exposure to different stimuli, I suppose. So thank you. Thank you, Tim. That is that is. Very interesting, and I, I think you're absolutely right about performativity. Uh, like I said, like fifteen minutes ago, I, I do think that teaching is a performance art. Um, I studied performance arts, and there is a lot of similarity between teaching and acting. Uh, you know, there is that mask. There is, as I believe, that character that you pay uh, that you play. Um, so to go back to to what I was saying. Uh, before Tim's very interesting comment. We have these these transient spaces that do make it difficult to construct our identity um, around your, your movements, your belief, your profession, your ideal, your organization. But, and again, like I mentioned when I was talking about GCSEs at the top of the show, it, we have started to create these spaces on social media Where outside of our own schools, we are creating essentially digital organizations through our feeds. You know, my Twitter page, um, I'm looking at it right now. Um, My top tweet at the moment is from Flora, who is one of our other hosts. Uh, I've got lots of Teachers Talk Radio tweets happening at the moment. um, And that's the space that I'm creating for myself. I've got a lot of tweets from the people who came to the... um, the MFL Icons Teach Meet um, in Manchester back in June, um, because you know I met all of these people, we exchanged our information, we created this community. And I think it is quite important for us to see that community, to see these digital spaces as perhaps filling that gap that can be made by, that can be created by the transients of our jobs, particularly if you are a nomadic teacher. Um, And I'm thinking now about maybe EAL teachers um, who might spend a couple of years teaching English in Dubai and then move on and teach in Vietnam and then move on and teach in Japan and then move on to to China and who might travel while teaching. Uh, And, you know, that's that's a lifestyle that they want. I think that would be very, very cool. Um, But again, there, there are circumstances that choice makes that a very transient life and so again it can be difficult to create that identity around it and perhaps these digital spaces these social media spaces um, can help them to create a community which can then feed into that third domain of of identity sometimes, as I said, these digital spaces help to affirm beliefs that you hold, and sometimes they help to challenge them, and that's important in creating your teacher identity. How do you know that you're the teacher who believes in having the kids coming up to the whiteboard and manipulating uh, the game on the board, if you haven't seen teachers not doing that, looked at whatever you think the outcome of that lesson should have been and gone, no, this would have been better if there was a game on the board. How do you know that you are a teacher who believes in taking ownership over the GCSE results and being able to call them my results? If you haven't listened to a teacher explaining how they don't feel that way and gone, no, I worked really hard for this. I put in a lot of effort in making sure that these kids got the results. This class belongs to me. They are mine. And so again, in these digital spaces where we can um, associate with teachers that we might not necessarily have met, uh, you know again, I'm in Gloucestershire, so i'm I'm down south. Had I not gone to the teach meet in Manchester, which was two and a half hours on the train, I wouldn't have met a lot of my um, a lot of my Twitter friends. Uh, who are fantastic teachers, brilliant people, and who I love learning from, and who bring very different ideas because of their different teaching contexts, and where I can go, yeah, actually, I really like that idea, I'm going to steal it, or no, that wouldn't work in my school for reasons x, y, and Z. And again, that helps me to construct my identity because I am now, and I realize this as I'm talking, I'm constructing an identity right now as a teacher who learns from other people because I am talking about how important it is for me to have these other teachers uh, who are sharing their things and for me to, to, to look at their practice and not criticize, but to go, yes, that would work for me or no, that wouldn't. And if you want to really get down into the psychology of it, I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know, I'm just kind of talking, uh, thinking out loud as it were, but if you want to get down into the psychology of it, is this because I want you guys, my audience, to construct an identity of me as a teacher who listens to other people? Do I want your thoughts to be, Darren is somebody who takes other ideas on board, so I'm gonna share my ideas with him. You know, it's quite interesting to think about how far down you go with this, how far down you deconstruct these ideas of constructing identity to figure out who you're trying to impress and when. Or of course, I could just be navel-gazing right now because a lot of the critique of constructing teacher identity that I've seen is about how teachers have this tendency to look inwards, and we are trained to do that. Um, when I was on school practice for my B.Ed, Part of our marks for those assignments came from how well we reflected on our practice. Um, to the extent that I, I actually did my NQT year in the school where I'd done my third placement, and I remember during my NQT year, a lesson hadn't gone very well, so I went to the staff room and I just was I was reflecting on it because that's what I'd been trained to do. And the teacher who had been my mentor came in and saw me writing in my in my reflection journal because um, I think that's when I'm writing down. And she said to me, you are too reflective. And I was like, but no, because I was told that that's why I was supposed to be. I was told that a teacher should be reflective. Um, so we do have this tendency to turn inwards, I think, because that's what we're told we should do. And, and I do believe that that is what we should do. Um, and I guess how far you want to deconstruct your identity, how far you want to think about, like Tim said, the performativity of teaching um, it depends on how interested you are in in that reflection. So we've got those three factors that uh, that Helen's research outlined, and, and I quite like that. I think for a, a working teacher or an on-the-ground teacher who is just trying to figure out who they are, perhaps for an, an ECT for a new teacher who is trying to figure out who they are, you know, who Miss Smith might be, that's a good place to start is to start thinking about what are your values? Um, I would start with that second one. What remains unchanged when your circumstances change? What do you actually believe about education? Then you figure out what sets you apart, but you can't really do that until you know the culture of the school that you are in, until you know what other teachers are like. And so that then is where it all starts to become very intertwined. But I think those three Um, those three ideas outlined by Helen um, in her book are very interesting and are a good place to start if you want to either think about your teacher identity or if you want to start taking ownership of it and actively constructing your identity as a teacher. Um, However, if we want to get a bit deeper than that, um, I found this work by Brad Olson. Um, It's entitled Identity Theory, Teacher Education and Diversity. I noticed that a lot of the research into teacher identity comes from a place of teacher training. And so it's a lot about ITT, um, initial teacher training, teacher education. And there is very little about teacher identity for people like me, uh, who have, you know, I've been in the profession 15 years, but I do still feel like I'm evolving as a teacher. Um, and one of my my core unchanging beliefs is if I stop thinking that I need to evolve as a teacher, if I start thinking that I've got all the answers, I need to leave. Um, because that means that I'm not doing what's best for my students. Uh, but that's just a little aside. <laughs> this work identifies one, two, three, four, five, seven, seven criteria around constructing your identity. So. According to this one, we have got a teacher's professional identity is dynamic and not fixed. So again, that kind of comes back to what we've been saying about how perhaps you as a person will deliberately change how you are identifying as a teacher, um, depending on how your practice changes, depending on what subject you are teaching, all of those things that I've already, already outlined. A professional identity is a process and a product. And I like that. Again, I wouldn't be here doing a whole 90-minute show about identity if I didn't like this idea of identity being a process. Um, you know, because I, I do believe in reflection. I do believe in, in figuring out what is uh, what could be improved about your practice, but also what is good about it, you know, and taking both of those things into your identity. But it is also a product. Your identity is a product of what you do. Um, like I've already said, the way that you construct your identity as a teacher might not necessarily tally with how other people see you as a teacher. I recently went through Threshold. Um, I should have done it a few years ago. Uh, well, I say that I went through. Touchwood. I went through. I submitted my application for Threshold. <laughs> for those of you, again, for those of you not in the British system, um, Threshold, a, a teacher here gets to the point where you stop moving up the pay scale, just as a natural part of your um, of your career progression. And the only way then to move through the pay scale is to take um, higher positions. But you can apply to go through threshold, which then does pop you back onto um, a slightly different progression where you can keep moving up, essentially, for a little while longer. Um, And you have to apply for that. So the application process kind of asks you to prove that you deserve it, essentially. It asks you to look back over your practice and meet specific criteria, either set by the school if you're in an independent context, um, or set by the state. And if you meet those criteria of what a teacher of so many years should be doing, um, then the school can move you through. So I applied for that and part of my process was asking for two references, one from my line manager about my teaching, my classroom practice, and one from the head of the boarding house with which I'm associated, asking for um, an, an outline of how I am both as a teacher, as a tutor, and as a member of staff duty, as somebody who does boarding duties. Um, of an evening, of a weekend, and it was actually quite interesting to read those references. Both, both of the teachers who wrote them asked me to read them, um, just in case there was anything else that I wanted to add in, um, because neither of them picked out things that I would have said if I had been writing a reference for me, and that really drove home how I actually had very little control over how they see me. And the things that I think define me as a teacher, the things that I try and make me define me as a teacher might not be the things that define me as a teacher in the eyes of other people. so again, that's this idea of of a transient identity because even between two different people who theoretically I know in the same capacity because theoretically they are you know one stage up the ladder from me, which is why they wrote wrote my reference they came out with completely different things from each other and from what I would have said. And part of that is down to the capacity in which they know me. So one of them, my line manager, knows me very much as a teacher. He is very much aware of of what goes on in my classroom, my subject knowledge, all of that stuff. and, And that's what was in the reference. The head of the boarding house knows me more in a pastoral capacity. How well I relate to my tutor group, how well I respond to uh, their issues, their needs, how well I deal with parents. And all of those things are part of me. But because they only see really those specific parts of me, that was what they focused on. and, And that is how they constructed my identity as a teacher for them. And again, quite different to, to my identity as a teacher for me. Not not no not different necessarily, but they didn't emphasize the same things that I would have emphasized. And perhaps that's why it's a good thing to get references um, because as long as it's a good reference, these people will see things about you that you might not necessarily have thought to, um, to discuss yourself. Um, The third on this list of seven is an ongoing and situated relationship among person, others, history, and professional contexts. The fourth is a political project as much as a philosophical frame. And that's quite interesting because as teachers, we attempt to be apolitical. You know, we shouldn't put our political beliefs in our lessons. We shouldn't overtly um, use our political beliefs in the classroom, but part of your teacher identity might be political. If you are, if part of your te- teacher identity is that you are the um, LGBT plus inclusive teacher, then that is political. Um, if part of your teacher identity is that you are the union rep, that's political that's that one's not necessarily something that the students will see so in constructing their version of you they won't see that but you might internalize that as something very very important your colleagues might internalize that as something that's very very important Um, it says that your teacher identity is socially situated and therefore not traditionally psychological so again that relates back to it being transient because it's based on where you are and your current situation. Right now I feel like my teacher identity is very strong. Um, I am happy right now to identify as a teacher. And perhaps, harking back to last week's show, that's because right now my self-esteem is high. I remember a time where I wasn't particularly happy identifying as a teacher, and that's because I was in a context that was not very positive. Again, I told this story last week about um, when I was talking about self-esteem. And so I kind of wanted to externalize that I wanted to separate out my Darren identity from my Mr. Lester identity, my teacher identity, because I wasn't in a good place. I wasn't in a good school for me. I wasn't in a school that was right for me. Um, Your professional identity in the next criterion is clearly differentiated from a teacher's role. And again, I think that that's very true because the role of a teacher is common for everybody. You know, all of our schools will have staff handbooks that very clearly outline what we have to do, and everybody does that. And so perhaps that's what brings us together as part of our identity, if we're going back to Helen's third criterion. And then what sets you apart comes away from your role because your role is to teach, to educate, to do all of the extracurriculars, do the pastoral, all of that sort of stuff. And then your identity is the rest, the stuff that you do that is not the same as everybody else. And then interestingly, the final criterion here is not clearly differentiated from a teacher's self. And that's the one that I think has, has stuck with me because I think sometimes it can be difficult to separate out your teacher identity from your self-identity. I think it's very easy for the two to become merged. I think it's very easy for your self-esteem, like I talked about last week, to be wrapped up in um, your identity as a teacher. and. I think quite often because we spend so much of our time, so much of our energy either in school or thinking about school, it's very easy for that teacher self to become our actual, to become our, not actual, our out of school self. And it can be very hard to delineate between the two. I think, you know, we've got in England, we've got standards of professional conduct. It's it's part of our part of our standards. And there are very specific things. There's a whole section about how we are to conduct ourselves as teachers outside of school so that we don't bring the profession into disrepute. So there is an assumption, even ingrained into our training, that we won't clearly differentiate our teacher self from our home life self. And you know, that's just something that we, um, that's just something that we understand as teachers, that's something that you kind of buy into, I suppose, when you you choose to train. And I don't know, I don't know how healthy it is to completely mingle the two, to not have a a work-life balance, I suppose. But again, that's not really what this is about today, that's going to require some more some more thought from from me. But that's a very interesting, I think essentially those seven points um, underline what Helen had said in her research and everything that we do, everything that we do from being in the classroom to talking to colleagues to um, interacting with the custodial staff it all helps to create to construct our identity and like Tim said earlier on it is all performative. So I now I want to spend the last kind of 10-15 minutes of the show kind of think about my identity because I think if I can kind of almost model, you know, I've gone into teacher mode, and if I model for you what that kind of process looks like, then those of you who are wanting to actively construct your own teacher identity might uh, might just take away a few things from it. So the first thing that I actually want to discuss is um, a Japanese concept called shibumi. Shibumi. Uh, sometimes it's called shibusa. So two words for it, um, and it's it's a Japanese aesthetic that kind of boils down to um, subtle beauty, I think is the best way to, to translate it. Um, but like lots of, of these Japanese ideas, like the idea of kawaii, of, of cute, um, like the idea of ikigai. Uh, it doesn't just refer to art it doesn't just refer to fashion it doesn't just refer to design um like it might be when we think of beauty um it can it can refer to all kinds of, of aspects of our lives so she yeah shibumi is this idea that There is perfection and there is beauty in things that are subtle, in things that are small, I suppose. Um, it, it kind of boils down to seven different elements. So the seven, the seven elements um, are simplicity, modesty, being natural, um, implicity, imperfection, Everydayness and silence. So, those are the seven things that make something shibui, to use the adjective. And I I think about this aesthetic sometimes because I think that that is how I like to define myself as a teacher. you know, I think a lot of my teacher identity is wrapped up in this idea of, of being overall simple. Trying to make the things that I do look effortless, but having the small, subtle details that show the work that I do. I don't necessarily want my students to know how hard I work for them. Um, I don't think they need to know how hard I work for them. They just need to know that they can come to my lesson and they will learn what they need to learn. And so I think, for me, that's where Shibumi becomes part of my teacher identity, because I am creating these lessons, and they do take a lot of time, you know, I still, 15 years into my practice, I still spend more time creating an average lesson than I will spend teaching it. And I will introduce these complex points to my students in a subtle, understandable way. And I will spend a lot of time making that happen, but I want them to think it's effortless. Because that is my role as the teacher, is to make sure that they can understand these complex ideas. If they know how hard I've worked to make sure that they understand, then I feel like that takes some of the trust away. Because it takes the onus off of them and off of the lesson and puts it back onto me. Um, And again, like I said earlier, one of my core concepts is that I am less important than the the subject that I'm teaching, than the lesson that I'm teaching. So I don't want it to be about me. Um, But the stuff that I'm teaching is complex, the pedagogy that I use is complex. I think a lot about making sure that the kids understand, making sure that my materials are understandable to them, and so that then is my my subtle details. It's my subtle complexity uh, within my practice. And then, interestingly, uh, as I was watching Titans on Netflix over the week, my show is always inspired by stuff that's on Netflix. Um, I think Netflix should sponsor me personally. Um, but I learned the word sprezzatura. I apologise to my Italian friends who might be listening in. Um, I do not speak Italian um, and that was my, my best attempt at pronouncing that word properly. Um, Sprezzatura is a concept that's actually very similar to Shibumi. Um, it's It first occurs in uh, The Book of the Quartier by uh, Baldassare Castiglione in 1528, and it it translates into English as um, an easy facility in accomplishing a difficult action that hides the conscious effort that went into it. There we go, I stumbled over that, (laughs) Um, but essentially it's this idea of making something look effortless even if it was very difficult. I'm thinking right now of my school's exam officer. Um, He's a very modest man, he would hate, I think, to know that I'm talking about him um, on the radio, but he is the embodiment, in my opinion, of Sprezzatore because he has a very difficult job. I, I take my hat off to all exams officers because what they have to do to juggle entries and inspections and invigilation, and not just for the terminus end of year exams, but for the entire school, you know, it, it's a huge job. It's a huge job and it's not one that I could do. But the exam officer at my school, um, a former teacher, he does make it look effortless. His um, his office is actually attached to our department, and so we see him quite often, um, sometimes stop by for a conversation, which I'm not sure he always appreciates <laughs> when he's busy. Um, but he, he works so hard, and if you were to look at how the exams are run, um, how the exam hall functions, you wouldn't think about the role that he was playing. You wouldn't think about the job that he was doing. Um, and he once said to me, "You know, if I've done my job properly, it looks like I haven't done anything." And and I really like that. I really like that because it's about facilitating what the students need. And I internalise that, and I think that about my teaching. Again, if I have done my job properly, if I have taught my concept properly, a student shouldn't necessarily remember the lesson in which they learnt it, they should just remember that concept. Of course it's nice if they remember certain activities, you know, I want them to enjoy my lesson, I want them to like the games that we play, or the song that we listen to, or whatever it might be, but I like this idea that what we're doing should become so much an everyday part of their lives, a normal part of their lives, that they can't necessarily pick out the point that they learnt it. I want my students in French to become so familiar with, let's say, the past tense that they do not remember the PowerPoint where I taught them what part of avoir we have to put with which past participle and how we make those participles from the... Uh, from the infinitive. I just want them to be able to do it. And so is becoming, I hope is becoming, uh, and I hope is a part of, of my identity as a teacher. This idea that that things are complex and you are not getting rid of that complexity. You are not um, ignoring that complexity, but you are making it look easy. One of the the biggest compliments that I think I've received in my career. Uh, this research, really me. I think about it quite a lot, was, was in a Christmas card um, from an old head of department. And she wrote, you know, there's was very nice. Merry Christmas. Thank you for everything that you do. And then she wrote to me, um, I really appreciate how you just quietly get on with everything, how you know what needs to be done and you do it. and. I was so happy about that. Because at that point, that wasn't something that I was consciously doing. That wasn't part of the teacher identity that I was trying to manifest. Um, but it was part of my teacher identity as far as she was concerned. And I liked that so much. I, I guess because I was thinking about these ideas of, of spritatora, of shibumi, but I wasn't conscious of them because I wasn't having these thought processes. I think that was what sparked me being interested in teacher identity and how she saw these things in me that I didn't realize was how I wanted to be seen. And I guess that's kind of the message that I want to, to leave on today. Um, explore these aesthetics, for want of a better word, um, you know, using a trendy word, explore these different ideas of things that you can be as a teacher figure out what they are, figure out which ones you consciously want to be, but also talk to your colleagues. Don't necessarily talk to your students, um, because we all know that students will quite often just tell us what they think we want to hear, but talk to your colleagues about what type of teacher they perceive you to be. Figure out whether their construction of your identity fits with your own construction of your identity, fits with what you want your teacher identity to be. If it does, if that does marry, then fantastic. Carry on doing what you're doing. If it doesn't, think about whether you're going to give any room to their ideas as part of your identity. Think about whether you're going to um, take those things in because maybe it's something that you've always wanted to be as a teacher and you just never realized that you were being it. And if it's not, think about what it is about your practice or what it is about how you present yourself in school that makes people identify you in that way and make that conscious effort to change it. Identity is, like Tim said when he texted in earlier, identity is transient. It can change and it does change. Sometimes we have No control over that. And sometimes we have total control over that. And it's constructed. We can decide our own identities here. There are certain things that we can't decide, of course. I can't suddenly decide that I am an A-level physics teacher when I struggled to get my head around GCSE physics when I was learning it. (laughs) but I can decide how I choose to identify as a teacher. I can construct my own teacher identity. And I don't know, maybe it is me being navel-gazing. And maybe some people are going to go away from this and their construction of my identity is that I'm a very self-absorbed person. But I do like to think about who I am as a teacher because I think that that, whether you know it or not, Um, influences every decision that you make. That is the end of our show today. Thank you so much to everybody who's joined me, um, both on the Podbean app and elsewhere. Thank you if you are listening live. I do appreciate you joining me for breakfast every Saturday morning. Thank you if you are listening on catch up. I'm glad that you were interested enough in this topic um, to spend some time catching up with it. If you are listening live, I would like to draw your attention to the fact that we have the Saturday lunch show with Joseph Hammond today. That will be going live at one o'clock, so in an hour and a half from now. Please do join in if you have the chance. And I will see you next week after I have been back to school, after I have done my two days of inset. We will be ready to embrace what the new school year brings. Have a great week, everybody. Thank you so much for listening.
0: You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.